0: My guest today is guide editor Dave Tack.
1: My guest today is senior reporter Charlie Hall.
0: Wait a minute. What are you doing on my podcast? What are
1: you doing on my
0: podcast, Charlie? Welcome to Polygon's Quality Control. Thank you so much for joining me today. it's It was good working with you out in l a, man. We don't get to do that enough.
1: I know. I know. and also thank you for joining me. I think is what you meant.
0: <laughs> well, who's editing this thing? Bad boy. Me. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm in. suddenly it's your <laughs> podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I um, I wanted to get you and, and actually a f- couple other folks on the line here that'll be appearing later in the show. We're going to talk also, I hope, with uh, Chris Plant about some of the games that he saw and also Allegra Frank, who we were working with out there in L.A. as well. But yeah. But I wanted to get you on the line today to talk about a few of the games that you and I saw. First on my list. Cyberpunk 2077. Did mm-hmm. you get in on one of these demos? I didn't. The fi- The infamous
1: like 50 some minute demo.
0: It was actually originally a, an hour and 15 minutes. The team told me they cut the thing down so they could actually fit people in and, and get them through. It was the hottest ticket at E3 this year. And I say that. And when I say that, understand that there were no tickets. This was private <laughs> invitation only. Um, funny story. I was actually I went back for my interviews late in the day on uh, Thursday, the last day of E3. And the very last session that they showed was for Hideo Kojima himself. And that was not a private session. He was packed in there like everybody else wow. <laughs> in the sweat box watching the big show.
1: He is. I mean, I think that sort of illustrates the it being the hottest ticket, maybe even unintentionally, because if you've been to a convention or really, I think probably any place on Earth where Kojima is, you, you know that he's a rock star, like it's Kojima and other people following him around and uh, often taking pictures. So if he didn't get a private briefing, th- this was in demand.
0: And it was really funny, the, the game director, Adam Badovsky uh, one of the guys from CD Projekt, was there. I was interviewing him, and he goes, well, yeah, Kojima's in there right now. I'm like, you know... What we should do mm-hmm. is we should see how he likes your trailer. And Adam goes, You're right. We should do exactly that. <laughs> so he and I are over there waiting to receive Kojima as he comes out of his first viewing of the trailer. And of course that's when the crowds crushed in and they're mm-hmm. grabbing and trying to get their their autographs and all that. It was it was quite a scene. Yep. They had to kind of usher him out of there. So I never did never did get comment by you Kojima know, on what he thought of the trailer. But
1: he is a legit uh, rock star.
0: It was amazing. But also, so was this trailer. Like I said, 50 minutes, Dave, and I'm sorry you didn't get to see it, it is as different as you could possibly mm-hmm. imagine from the work that uh, CD Projekt has been doing for the last decade. This studio, of course, famous for their work on The Witcher series of games. This is not that. This is not medieval fantasy, not even a little. It is a... I mean, the most surprising thing to everybody that saw it is, Dave, it's, it's a first-person shooter. The only yeah. time you're going to get third-person is during uh, cinematics, during uh, well, sex scenes, during driving sequences that's it. Otherwise, you're looking down the gun. Yeah. How did that strike you? I
1: I imagine it was surprising because I feel like it was surprising to everybody. But beyond that,
0: well, you know, I, I, again, I pushed on them in that interview that I did. And, and Adam said it was just, it was the best feel that they could get for the guns. It was the most cinematic. It was the best experience. And, and that's why they chose it. It was, it was absolutely a decision on their part, though, and, and a difficult one at that to go with the first person perspective. I don't mind it. Um, there is this. There's this skill system in the game, though, and I I don't know that all of the skills are going to translate well to the first-person perspective. What I mean by that is there's a bullet-time effect, right? And that's all fine and good. I can leap out of cover, Max Payne style, and two guns blazing, do my bullet-time thing. But say that I want to do this weird running, lunging, speeding thing where I leap Behind the enemy's cover, and then slide on my shoulder and shoot them in the back. It's it's a very acrobatic game, and I'm not sure that that's going to translate well to the first person. It's really going to take some nuance, and it's it's very much unlike anything that CD Projekt has attempted to do before.
1: Right? Yeah. The it it, it sort of reminds me of a little bit of what Bioware is trying to do with Anthem, which is basically make a shooter, a third person shooter. RPG, but it's a studio not particularly known, although it has had shooting before, you know, not known for going shooter first.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What, what is at the forefront of their design process though, is the role playing game elements, right? This is, this was not Mm -hmm. sold. It was not described as a first person shooter. It is a role playing game first and a shooter second. What does that mean? It means that all of your dialogue choices are gonna occur in engine. Um, there was a particular scene where we went to a uh, a weapons deal, right? Deep inside this dungeon with this uh, group of psycho gangers known as the maelstrom, heavily augmented people, seven electro optical eyes that move and follow you around the room that react like like eyebrows, but they're these twitching electronic eyes. And our sidekick, uh, Jackie, who's this bilingual English, Spanish, techno babble speaking thug with like arms the size of honey baked hams Uh steps up to these guys and he will not sit down during the arms deal. And they make it very clear. You need to sit down or we're going to sit you down. At that point, a radio menu shows up right on his back while he's having this confrontation off screen to the left. You actually have to turn towards it, select to interact with the radio menu, choose a dialogue option. Otherwise, it'll just that that scene will play out on its own. So all of that kind of interactive conversational stuff happens right there in front of you. You have to reach out and grab it, though. The other thing that was really interesting was was this driving. How much of the driving was shown during the trailer? I I don't think all that much, Dave. No, not to my recollection. And the the driving that I did see in the trailer was was not great. It was real fast. It was real jerky.
1: In the demo, you mean?
0: In the demo, yeah, in yeah, that yeah. behind closed doors demo. So I think that they have a lot of work to be done there on the driving mechanics, but. I mean it's it's supposed to be an open world game. You're going to be able to drive around wherever you want to go. You don't have to follow the main the main storyline. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out.
1: It seems wildly ambitious for even for a studio that has made ambitious games before.
0: Well, the proof is going to be in the pudding. We've written a lot about it. Um, there's going to be, of course, full nudity in the game. It's part of this theme of transhumanism. Um, but they're also drawing on this great body of work from a guy named Mike Pondsmith, mm-hmm. who published this as a tabletop pen and paper game in 1988 called Cyberpunk 2020. Um of course, there's no deadline. We don't know when the game's coming out, but I yeah. bet you, Dave, that it's going to be on or around 2020, given the source oh. material. That seems like a good d- deadline to work from. I think so,
1: now that you mention it.
0: We're just going to have to see how this one pans out. I don't think it's going to be a 2019 thing, though, for sure. There's, there's a lot of work yet to be done.
1: Yeah, it's sort of the classic or the best example in my head of a certain kind of game that we saw at E3 2018 that... Mm, you know, is in some state of completion that doesn't feel like it's very close to completion. So, you know, it may show up in another E3. It may show up on current consoles. It may show up on future hardware. It may span both. Like, you know, this is, uh, you know, what what they showed you and, and from what you've read and just said, um, it seems like there's a lot of work to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I did ask them about future consoles and they, they were, they were, they were not cagey. They're like, we don't know about any future consoles. We don't, we haven't heard about them. We haven't seen specs or designs. So right now mm-hmm. they're designing for current generation consoles and, you know, future PC graphical hardware, obviously. Yeah. Uh, next up, I want to switch over to our conversation with Chris Plant. We're going to talk about Rage 2. <laughs> I am here with Chris Plants. Chris, how you doing? You recovering from E3?
2: Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm a little, I'm a little tired. I came back to my, uh, my wonderful four month old baby, and his way of greeting me was to not sleep for three days straight. So, I'm feeling rejuvenated. I'm feeling inspired by the miracle of life. And I um, have never been more sleep deprived.
0: Nice. Light hallucination goes along with New Parent. Uh, I can attest mm, to that. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a drug. Uh, another uh, light hallucination that we all shared, those of us who were at E3 and those watching from home, was Rage 2. This game looks insane. It's coming from Bethesda and also from id Software, right?
2: Uh, yes, that is correct. So,
0: Rage Two is the sequel, of course, to the original Raid. Tell tell me about the world that
2: this game is set in and, and what the gameplay is like, Chris. Sure. Well, I can't speak to the world too much. Some some additional background: It's a collaboration. ID was the company that famously created Doom uh, a long time ago. Then, not so famously, made the original Rage along with a new ID Tech engine that was supposed to be. All the rage. Hey oh thank you. I'll collect my check. You're correct, um, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that game did not do well and it seemed like uh it was in a pretty bad spot for a while the their other big project was the reboot of doom which seemed doomed oh my gosh i'm not even trying at this point i'm sorry these puns they're inescapable but then that game finally uh found its way and it shipped and it was it was really really good so now we know after e3 2018 There is another Doom in the works that Id, I imagine, is pretty focused on. And for the Rage sequel that nobody expected would happen, they've partnered with Avalanche Studios, uh, who are famous for open world games. They made the Just Cause series. They made the Mad Max game, which was pretty disappointing. They almost made an Iron Man game, uh, and that didn't end up working out. But Rage 2, the promise is that there's going to be this huge, big, open-world, classic Avalanche stuff. It'll have really improved vehicle combat, I, I would assume, kind of riffing off of uh, what they learned from Mad Max. But what we saw... At, at E3 was a indoors demo. Uh, it was more of a corridor shooter. And for that reason, it seemed to show off what the id half of this development collaboration brings to the table, which is the gunplay, which feels a lot like uh 2016's Doom If it were even more over the top, which says something considering how much uh, that game was already pretty out there.
0: What was interesting to me in in this reveal trailer that came out a couple of weeks, maybe like a full month ago, were just all the different factions and all the different environments. It wasn't just this barren wasteland there was almost like a jungle setting there were military factions also kind of these classic wastelander type factions who were the enemies and what was that environment like that you saw at e3 Yeah,
2: that's a great question um the enemies at e3 were um generic you know like hill rats i don't know what the term is for for their mutants I'm, I'm sure there's some like pithy uh john carpenter style post-apocalyptic description for them but they're they're generic foot soldiers they have a little bit of um night late 1970s to mid 1980s punk flavor again borrowing from uh, the original mad max films not not the modern sequels um they have you know wild hairstyles and they don't wear shirts and they have a certain fondness for like used bondage (laughs) gear um it's hard to find new bondage gear in the future chris i don't please understand yeah I, i mean i think that's pretty much all you have to know about them is they are incredibly dumb multiple times in the demo you come across them not paying attention which i i asked um Studio director about, and he was like, Yeah, we want you to have the opportunity to play with all the toys that we give you. So, time and again, you find pretty exposed and vulnerable enemies, and you can turn to all of your abilities to destroy them however you wish. It's it's a little bit like the T-Ball version of uh, First Person Shooters.
0: Wild. Wild. Nonetheless, a lot of folks were really excited about it. It seemed to have a good showing at this year's E3. Of course, in, in addition to these big blockbuster releases, it felt like... It was an e3 pockmarked with with awkward conversations with developers one of them came in a session that i had with the folks uh from th- that are making the division two uh, we talked a little bit about you know fascism as you do uh, when you talk about modern american politics and 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 sadly video games uh, but you also had a conversation with the developers about about well how they design and make their enemies
2: yeah, yeah. I had a chance to talk with um, Tim Willits, who is the studio director at id Software. And a thing that really rubbed me the wrong way about the original Rage, and this is a, a kind of a beef I carry with a lot of enemy design, especially when they play with mutants, is that they had these generic monster creatures who have a deformity where it kind of looks like a cleft lip and a cleft palate uh, at birth, which is something I was born with. And obviously I'm... Uh, somewhat sensitive to the the enemy is missing essentially the the top of their lip and the bottom of their nose and when i i I was disappointed to see it uh show up in the trailer for rage 2 i was especially disappointed to see that there's a special uh i don't know whatever expensive statue edition of rage 2 that comes with a bust of a I guess dead, pseudo dead mutant that um, has this design. Well, it, more
0: than that, it, it's like a big mouth Billy Bass. It'll actually talk to you, Chris.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's Andrew W.K. who voices it, which is crushing. I love Andrew W.K., if it even really is Andrew W.K., which is a question we'll save for another podcast, whether or not there are more than one. But anyway, yeah, I I, I brought it up with Timulitz at the end of the interview, and I got the very surprising response, which was... I'm sorry, you know, he asked if it was something I was sensitive to, obviously, and he apologized and he said that it would be something that they would talk with their people about uh, for the future. And, and again, and this is something I clarified when I was talking with him, my issue isn't that the bad guys have this design, right? It's the post-apocalypse, I get it, like that's that's part of the form the issue is that it's always just the bad guys. You never see the heroes, and it's this weird thing where you are in the post-apocalypse, and suddenly all the heroes look gorgeous and have perfect skin and complexion, and uh, none of these issues, and the villains are all you know hobbled monsters. And and I and that was something I asked you know would would we see heroes that looked like this, not just villains and He essentially told me not to get my hopes up this time around. But hopefully it's something that we see change, you know? Um, Representation, obviously, matters tremendously in games. I would not go so far to say that my... Uh, experience uh, with shooting things that have pseudo cleft lips and palettes compared to the much greater issues of representation in games. But still, I I, I didn't really realize how much it affected me until I got that apology. Uh, And it, it really made me emotional to actually just hear somebody acknowledge the problem rather than Try to spin it.
0: A, a rare moment of self-reflection, and, and you know, maybe add uh, the empathy in a, a conversation with the developer. It's not something that you have every day, and it's one of the reasons that I love going to E3 is because you just get to to be in the room with these people and have these conversations that you just can't have any other way. Before we go, did you know Avalanche Studios actually brought two games to this year's E3? They, they're working on. Rage 2, obviously, but they also had there this this game called Generation Zero. Have you heard about oh, this?
2: They brought three games. What? They brought Rage 2, they brought Just Cause 4, and they brought Generation Zero. Oh, that's right! I believe at least two of those run on Apex Engine. Might be all three, which is their new... Fancy open world engine.
0: It's wild. That studio, that studio is doing a lot of work. We're gonna have to keep an eye on those guys. See if any of these things get bumped. I don't think uh, Rage Two has a release date right now, or does it?
2: Yeah, I think it's sometime next year. I, I and you know, there's there's one other thing I want to point out about Rage Two. Sure. Because I I, I can I know we're wrapping, but I it, this is kind of uh, something I sensed about the state of the industry and expectations. Lay it on me. Which is. Something has changed where a game that is made by, partly, the team who made 2016 Doom, right? And it it has all that benefit. And then it's also made by these experts in open world games. And it has a huge, huge open world. It's visually stunning from, you know, the drop of the hat. It has this car combat that we haven't really seen in anything, and all that's in the trailer. This isn't stuff you know that's like hard to figure out um, that you only l- learn through you know a conversation. It's it's all pretty immediately obvious within thirty seconds of watching a trailer for it. That we know all of this about the game, and yet it feels like a B game. Like if you if you talk to anybody, it's like oh, yeah, Rage Two. Like sure, I'm I'm sure that would be fun to play, but you know it's not. It's not A list. It's not you know, the next elder scrolls. It's not, um, last of us part two. And it's weird to me that I have no doubt. This game is costing a ton, a ton of money to produce. And it was doing all of these things. And yet we're at a point in this industry where something that big still kind of scans as second class, and I don't, I don't know why. I don't know, I don't know what about it makes it feel like that, and what has changed that you know there. These expensive games don't quite rise, I guess, in hype to to the other projects, but it, it's it's very strange, and I'm very curious what the publisher bethesda and the developer are thinking coming out of e3 looking at all of you know the i'm sure they have consultants who are giving them endless reports both internal and external and what they think about that kind of shift in terms of enthusiasm for this sort of game
0: well you and jason schreier and i we talked about some of this in our pre-e3 show bethesda showed Everything, Chris. They just they laid it all out there. I thought that was they did. unusual for them. They they generally tend to hold things back. Even even Starfield. That's future space game is just a tease. But now they admit that they're working on it and it's it was
2: conspicuous. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I think the spin is that they're doing this because, hey, it'll leak anyways, right? So we might as well control the moment. We're we're being transparent. I don't know if I buy that. I think there's probably more to it than that. And I, I, I think it's something worth keeping our eyes on. Like what what Bethesda wants to gain from showing, I don't think it's everything. I think they have plenty else still in the works. I, I'm, I'm very curious what both Arcane Leon and Arcane Austin are working on. But I think it's a lot. Of stuff out there. So I yeah, I'm I'm curious what we see from Bethesda in the next year, uh, in terms of like, what all this means for them to kind of, like you said, make make a pretty big change in terms of how they present themselves as a company. Uh, We'll see. Well, we'll be
0: tracking it. Thank you so much for the time, Chris. Welcome back. It's Charlie Hall, your host here with Dave Tack, your other host, and we're kind of wrapping up things that we saw at E3. How you doing, Dave? I am phenomenal. Phenomenal. You're yeah. doing better than I am the week post E3. My <laughs> gosh. I am sore. I, I need like a, a young yeah. priest and an old priest and a massage, I think. <laughs> uh.
1: I, yeah, it's. It. I mean, what rough lives we lead, of course. But Dude, I put on a lot of miles. Don't mock me. There is a special brand of tired like the week after E3 that, that you just have to go through.
0: I want to talk with you specifically, though, about The Last of Us two Mm, part two part Part two two. that's actually important okay so the last of us part two this came as a surprise though to to virtually no one we've kind of been expecting (laughs) this for some time haven't we Mm -hmm. well i mean we've
1: known about the game's existence for quite a while i think the big difference when it premiered at this e3 was that we actually saw some gameplay did we we did we did. So was it the trailer? Was it
0: really gameplay, though? no well,
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, okay. I, I saw you know, I saw the trailer. I was at the PlayStation briefing, and I saw what everybody saw, which was a gameplay trailer. Then I had a, a behind closed doors meeting with a bunch of other people to watch that play out in real time, and they followed. You know, it was a person holding a controller in their hands, and they followed the exact same path that the trailer did. So, like, I can't 100% vouch for it being played, but I would uh, I would give them the benefit of the doubt that they weren't just, um, you know, pretending to play something that was recorded. I mean, what we saw in the trailer is exactly what I saw behind closed doors. There's the cut scene at the dance, there's a sort of smash cut to some combat, and then there's a cut scene back to the dance. Those things are... Because I talked to the co-directors of the game, both in the game, but they are not necessarily uh, in the game in exactly that way. In other words, they took two parts of the game and sort of mashed them together to try and make a point about the
0: game. And obviously the the big takeaway, though, that that everybody really was stunned and, and amazed and excited about is that you get to play as Ellie in this game.
1: Not just as Ellie, but according to Neil Druckmann who is I think the vice president uh, at at Naughty Dog now he got a promotion but he was a co-director of the first game but according to him you know I, I was able to independently confirm that he says Ellie is the only playable character and if you've played the first Last of Us game uh, you know that's significant
0: wow and you know just you mentioned the mashup though between this intimate scene with Ellie mm-hmm. and her girlfriend and just some of the most brutal melee combat that we saw in all of e3 yeah
1: it's so I, I totally understand why you would say ellie and her girlfriend although i'm not actually sure that that's who that character is if you watch the trailer okay. several times you can sort of you can sort of tease out a little more meaning uh, but uh, her name is dina uh, i know after having talked to the directors that she's been a longtime friend of ellie the guy that ellie was talking to at the beginning of the trailer was clearly dating dina and, uh yeah, it, 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 like the the whole point of this trailer is because it's there's nothing really subtle about the the overtones in the trailer. Right. Because it goes from it basically sandwiches brutality between emotion. And that was the point. Like it was it was not lost to anyone who's making the game or put together the trailer that like that's exactly the kind of thing that they wanted to get across, which is this sort of, you know, Ellie's 19. There's a sort of teenage love and emotional vulnerability there that takes place in the universe of The Last of Us where, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, fungal infected zombies everywhere, but humans in this world are just as much a threat as as the infected. And the juxtaposition between the sort of softly lit intimate moments and the sparsely lit violent moments were exactly what they were trying to get across and i think i don't know how you reacted to it when you saw it but i i found it jarring
0: no it it absolutely was jarring and i don't know that it was i don't know how else to say that i don't know that it was the best use of mm-hmm. their time here at e3 to make such a stark contrast between those two vignettes mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still unsure about that decision
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you uh, what it relies on uh, at its core is a knowledge of the first game. And if you know Ellie from the first game and you know what she went through and you know her story, you can sort of extrapolate to get to this point and to see why she would be in a situation. Even if you don't know the details, you can see why or how she could be in a situation where this was. You know, this sort of brutality is the kind of thing that you get in The Last of Us's world. And, you know, I, I give Ellie the benefit of the doubt in that she uh, is not necessarily going on a murder spree, but that, that, that those are bad people and there is a choice between her and them, and I'm going to root for her every time. But without that context or or the context of the first two trailers, which did not involve gameplay, The second trailer, the one from last, I think it was the PlayStation experience last year, was, I don't think there were any main characters in that trailer, and it was also rather brutal. They're clearly at Naughty Dog setting up an expectation for an ugly, ugly world where violence is necessary. But if you don't have that context, I'm not a mind reader. Mind reading doesn't exist as far as I'm aware. I can't can't explain to you why people were cheering and whooping. And if they were for what I think the developers would consider the right reason, but uh, or the right reasons, but um, like I said, it was anything but subtle. It was it was at the very least something that a lot of people were talking
0: about. Last question for you on the Last of Us Part Two, though. We've seen some of the gameplay, we've seen that brutality, we've met some of the characters. Mm-hmm. What's the plot though? What what are our motivations? Do we know what we're going to be doing yet?
1: Nothing specific. I know that something happens. You don't say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So
1: something happens that sets Ellie on a course where she does these things. I don't know if it's revenge or anger or something, but where we left her in the last game was in a place that seemed pretty, you know, in the in the post-apocalyptic world of The Last of Us seemed pretty good, about as close to pre-apocalypse humanity as you could find and I think the scene at the dance in the barn or whatever it was the wedding reception—I don't know what it was—that is representative of what normal, in as much as there can be normal, there uh, looks like. And uh, something shakes Ellie out of her normal world, and she goes on a quest to do whatever it is. It, but it certainly involves a lot of a lot of killing. <laughs> and uh yeah like they're they're doing naughty dog is doing nothing new like this is how everybody markets a game isn't it charlie like we're gonna give you a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this and they just drip it out the idea being from a marketing perspective to to gather more interest to get people to follow the game and then eventually want to buy the product and it's not you know i don't think there's anything weird or dishonest about that i think it's Pretty normal, but I don't know. If 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 you don't, you better be sure. I guess, and I don't. You know, I'm not the person to answer this. But you better be sure that like you're creating the kind of interest you want to create. You know, if you're just going to sort of drip this stuff out, and they are and. Th- that's what we got
0: the narrative and the themes of that original title are just so closely held mm. and closely regarded from all the mm-hmm. folks that played it so i just i'm very curious to see where they go with this storyline and yeah we're we're going to be covering more of it here at uh, polygon as the year at the as the year and hopefully not the years go on what do we have a release date yet
1: no no i okay. was actually surprised there was no You know, the way they're framing this, I mentioned at the beginning, is that this is The Last of Us Part 2, as in not just 2, as in Part 2, as in it continues that story very much, at least in their minds. The title is designed to indicate that it is the second part of the story that began back then. When we will get that second part? I don't know. I was assuming... That was probably going to be this year, but they sure didn't say that. So
0: Mm. We're going to talk next with Allegra Frank, one of our folks that had hands-on with Super Smash Brothers for the Nintendo Mm. Switch. But first, a quick note on this year's Code Conference. Hello, listeners of Quality Control. This is Peter Kafka. I am the host of Recode Media. On this show, you guys hear about big blockbuster movies
1: coming out from studios like Disney and Fox, as you probably know, they're trying to combine those two studios together I talked to the guy who's trying to put that deal together, James Murdoch, the CEO of 21st Century Fox. We talked about why he wants to sell to Disney, why he may or may not sell it to Comcast instead, what it's like when your dad is Rupert Murdoch, what it's like when you run Fox News and your politics probably don't align with Fox News. It's a pretty good conversation. You will like it. It's free. It's Recode Media with Peter Kafka.
0: I am here with deputy news editor Allegra Frank. Well actually no, I'm back in Chicago. Allegra, you're in New York. How you doing?
3: I'm all right. How are you?
0: Not too shabby. I I, I put I got like a good ten hours of sleep last night. I'm really into the recovering from E three thing. How how are you feeling?
3: Uh I am also still recovering. Or I, I mean maybe <laughs> I'm still recovering hardcore. Could definitely use a nap.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a long week. What's really nice, I was talking to plant about this. It's just nice getting in front of people. And you know, these are folks that we trade emails with all year. It's folks that we will occasionally see at conferences, but it it just kind of feels different at E3 because they're there to show they're big, bright, new thing. And one of them is for the Nintendo Switch. What did you get to play with, Allegra?
3: Uh, I got to play Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And Charlie, I am so excited for December 7th because I've just wanted to play it again and again and again ever since.
0: Now, this thing is is wild. They announced this during the the, the Nintendo pre-E3 event. And along with that announcement came the statement. It, it is a statement more than anything Every Nintendo character will be in the game. Allegra, how is that possible?
3: Um. Well, it's the ultimate edition, right? So at this point, I mean, Super Smash Brothers has just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of popularity and actually like character roster size. So there's been over 64, 65 characters already, you know, so they've, they've just been able to just throw them all in there. And then hopefully adding a few new ones, although I'm not sure that they're going to be adding as many as other titles. Well,
0: oh, goodness, sixty some is plenty. So what was the what was the experience like? Did you get invited up to the Nintendo booth where there a whole bunch of other people playing? Take me kind of through the the time with the game at E3. Yeah,
3: I got to play it a couple times. So I got to play it um, on the Sunday before E3 started. There was a little smaller event, um, so I was part of that so there was just a really small gather group of press I played with Chelsea and our friends from Waypoint (laughs) Uh, which was really fun and then I got to play it um, on the first day of E3 on the show floor Nintendo has a a big booth um, so we got to go up there and play it played that again with Chelsea our managing editor and Brian from the video team here And then I played it again the next day with uh, another group of Polygon friends, uh, mostly Simone and Pat and Chris Plant.
0: So what were your goals and objectives, though, each time that you touched the game? Were you really working on your Toad skills? Were you trying to move around the the character list? Like, what, what were you trying each time that you saw the game?
3: So there were a few new characters, or rather two. There's two key new characters to try. Inkling Girl and Boy from Splatoon... And then Ridley from Metroid—I was about to say Super Metroid—but like he's from most of the Metroid <laughs> games. So I really wanted to see how they played. I wanted to try their move sets. I wanted to, you know, see their special little taunts and costumes and all of that. So that was definitely a big part of why I wanted to play. Also, another thing is like you got to try out Kirby after Kirby sucks up any character. So I needed to see how Kirby Ridley and Kirby Inkling and Girl played.
0: Because <laughs> Kirby kind of gathers up some of their powers, I imagine. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And then he has a little hat that looks like them.
0: <laughs> so, you know, the Switch is, is a really unique platform, of course. It's this hybrid console and portable device. Are they are they kind of leaning into the gimmick with anything special for for Smash Bros this time?
3: Um, So I only got to play it on the TV. Yeah, so the Smash Brothers series has been on a handheld before. Uh, it was on the 3DS and it, it launched on Wii U at the same time. So there was already sort of the, you know, handheld and console versions simultaneously. But then, uh, the, you know, Smash Brothers for Wii U did have certain console optimizations that made it just a better choice than the handheld one. And I think this time there's sort of parity between the, the modes, the docked handheld and TV mode. I only got to play it on TV mode, but as far as I could tell, there weren't any specific things unique to that play style over, you know, what I imagine handheld or docked would be like.
0: And I understand that there are going to be uh, a couple of different modes for the game, though, including an eight-player mode.
3: Right. So the eight-player mode was first introduced as part of Smash Brothers for Wii U. So they're bringing that back. They're also bringing back GameCube controller support, which is lovely. Yeah. Ooh.
0: They're... How is that going to happen? How... What do you plug it into?
3: So they're re-releasing this um, GameCube controller adapter that they first released for the Wii U as well. And that will be like a USB device. And then you plug that into the, the dock, I guess. The dock has USB ports. And then mm-hmm. through that, you plug in the game controllers. So that's actually an exclusive to the TV mode. You will only be able to do that using TV mode. That's
0: interesting. All right. Anything else of, of note about the Nintendo booth they're showing that, that you really enjoyed?
3: So they've really only had a few really new games to demo. As in, like, upcoming games. So the other one I played was Pokemon Let's Go, which is out on Switch in November. It's the first Pokemon game developed particularly for Switch.
0: Now, I'm really interested in this one because I recently got a Switch kind of last Christmas for our family. My my daughters are way into Pokemon Go. But, you know, I tried the 3DS version, the most recent one, I think Pokemon Sun, with my oldest, and she kind of bounced off of it. Too much running around, too much questing for her. She just wants to throw them Pokeballs, Allegra. Tell me about uh, this new Pokemon for Switch.
3: So I think at first people sort of saw it as Pokemon Go, but on a console, which is actually how I thought of it at first as well. But actually, it is more like a traditional Pokemon adventure, just sort of, one, I mean, it looks a lot better than any other Pokemon game in that it's for, you know, a home console. But two, it also has some unique optimizations and little features like there's a co-op mode which has never been in pokemon before and the main draw for especially for your daughter is that the wild pokemon battles are just throwing at the pokemon exactly like in pokemon go you can actually move the controller as if you're throwing a ball to catch a pokemon
0: oh that's interesting it's interesting to see that Nintendo is going kind of back to their their motion controlling. Mario Tennis Aces, of course, just came out. We get a review up at the website today. Um, that, that's so interesting that you actually get to throw the ball.
3: Yeah, exactly. I think it's a really major appeal to that Pokemon Go audience that hasn't really made that bridge over to um, the traditional games like Pokemon Sun that you mentioned um, and those other handheld games. So definitely with the motion control being so accessible and Pokemon Go's wild battles being pretty familiar at this point and pretty ease of use. They're trying to really uh, bring in newcomers by throwing in the motion and also introducing them slowly into the the main Pokemon world.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, Allegra, I hope that you're, the rest of your week goes well. I know that you and I both have a couple more articles to kind of round out our E3 that we got to get up in the old website. So I'll I'll let you get back to it. Thanks for the time.
3: Yeah, thanks, Charlie.
0: We're back here with Dave Tack. I'm Charlie Hall. Dave, one of the last games that I wanted to talk about, one of the big titles from this year's E3 is called Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. We both saw this. We did. I, I went and I, <laughs> I actually met the, good story. to give you listeners a little insight into how E3 kind of works sometimes. I don't set up all my appointments, right? We have a very small team. Our time is very limited. And um, I think it was Chelsea and Allegra with some help maybe from Mike McWhorter, set up most of the appointments this Mm -hmm. year for all of the folks that were there on the ground, myself and Chris Plant and all all the rest of us that were there in LA. One of the appointments was unannounced title from Activision. That's all that was in my Google calendar. Go to this place at this room, look for this man, and he will show you a video game. (laughs) And by God, Dave, it was Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. I roll in there and here is From Software in this hotel suite with the folks from Activision, giving me and this other journalist in the room this firsthand account, the very first look at Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Surprise. At the end of that appointment, it goes live on the Xbox presentation. So I'm downstairs with these two Japanese dudes from From Software having a Mm -hmm. cigarette, and they're watching their game premiere to the world on Xbox Live. It It was a wonderful moment for me and for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, it must be fun, I imagine, to watch that happen.
0: But the, what Dave, what is this game? This is not a traditional from software title, yeah. or is it? Well,
1: I mean, I think you can definitely see from software DNA in it. But if you, you know, from software is, a, I think still it would be fair to say a relatively small game developer. like I don't think there's a thousand people at from software working to make games. but over the last mm, decade or so, close to it anyway, they have become, a much more popular and respected developer than they were before. They've been around for, for quite a while.
0: Yeah, they, they went from like a cult favorite, though, to being yeah. a mainstream AAA title with this hardcore set yeah. of rules and, and tropes.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, it started with the first Dark Souls, which sort of became a a bit of a cult classic, just got the remastered release within the last month or so. And every subsequent Dark Souls game, I think, was more popular than the last They did Bloodborne, uh, which was a PlayStation 4 exclusive. That is very much, although it is not called Dark Souls, it is very
0: much in the Souls formula, right? It has its own internal logic and storyline, but it's almost like an Elizabethan kind of steampunky kind of
1: thing. Yeah, it's sort of a Victorian, gothic horror as opposed to Dark Souls, which is more like medieval fantasy. Yeah, so like, you know, that's... That's how they became uh, the the bigger and more popular and well-respected studio they are. So they show up at E3. There was a tease for a game called Shadows Die Twice last year at the PlayStation Experience. And it was just this tiny little thing that gave absolutely, like, contextless. There's no way to indicate what the heck it is. And it turns out the bone we saw in that teaser trailer is a very big part of of this game, which they revealed not at the PlayStation event, but at the Xbox event at E3. And uh, is it a Dark Souls game? I don't think so. Is it a Bloodborne game? I don't think so. They're basically trading stuff they've done before for a... Uh, like Basically, they're moving from Europe to Japan. And instead of a knight or a Victorian, I don't know, monster hunter person... <laughs> you're a ninja. I think you can basically understand Shadows Die Twice with two bits of information. Number one, you're a ninja, and that and that implies a lot of stuff we can talk about in a minute. And number two, you have a grappling hook on your arm at all
0: times. But it's not just an arm, it's a shinobi prosthetic That's if your arm right. has been severed and it's been replaced yep. with this mysterious thing.
1: Yeah, and like the... The By being a ninja, you have, you know, there are certain, I don't know, ninja-like expectations that you would have, say, that, that are different than, say, if you were describing a knight. So, you know, there's a sort of a stealth element to it. There's a speed element to it. There's a verticality to it. There are certain kinds of weapons, you know, things like that that could cross over into, say, a Dark Souls game because, like, they have katanas too, but it's not a game fundamentally at its core about eastern or asian fantasy and this very much is and uh you know from from the trailer you can if it, it's it was tough when i first saw the trailer i didn't get much out of it because it just seemed like a collage of of shots but if you watch it again you can sort of piece together a story it, it begins sort of with with actual characters When when i interviewed uh, miyazaki who's the sort of the uh i don't i don't know what his exact position was before he was the he became in 2014 the president of from software but he was basically the brainchild behind dark souls and demon souls before that and bloodborne right like he's he's a creative person who ascended to also uh, sort of directing the studio and his idea for this game when i interviewed him was basically to take the the sort of fantastic leaps they had with European mythology or fantasy whatever you want to call it and and apply that to to Asian m- mythology so you get you get a lot of these things where you can use a grappling hook right to fight or to leap from treetops to walls to roofs you can sneak up on enemies you have they, they talked in your appointment right Charlie about the axe that you have as
0: well yes yes you you have these things that attach to the shinobi prosthetic. And one of them, the one that they showed in addition Mm -hmm. to the grappling hook was this shinobi ax that they called it. And it, it kind of, it protrudes the blade, the flat part of the ax comes off your elbow Mm -hmm. until you need to use it. Then it swings forward under your arm into your hand yeah. and you use it to to rip shields apart so you can break an yeah. enemy's guard and, and get at them with your more nimble katana.
1: Right. You, you can see actually that it, it goes by fast, but if you're looking for it, you can see in the trailer that it, it, it seems to be like Bloodborne where you had these weapons that were trick weapons, switch weapons, mm-hmm. where, you can, where, where they basically have two configurations, but your shinobi arm, which is that bone-looking thing protruding out of your left arm, has the grappling hook, but also has it appears to me a an alternate, not configuration, attachment is the word I'm looking for there, right? So yeah, like you yeah. go up, you can see in the trailer the main character uh, unleashes the axe, chops away at a wooden shield that a character is using, and then uses his sword to finish the 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 bad guy off. So it's you know there's again from software DNA inside of this. Um, But it does not seem to be a Dark Souls game in the way that, say, Bloodborne was very much influenced by Dark Souls. You'll see from software, I think, and feel from software, but they are definitely departing in a lot of ways.
0: Two other things that really jumped out at me. The first was... The way it differentiates between blocking attacks and parrying attacks. When you parry an attack, as, as least, at least as it was described to me during this closed-door hands-off demo, you know, you, you kind of catch the enemy's attack, you use their momentum against them, and then you transition into this, this brutal, close-quarters, almost grappling attack where you're slashing at the unprotected neck or their torso because they've failed with their own attack and you've parried it out of the way. But also the death mechanic is very different. What do you know about the death mechanic, Dave?
1: I can't say I fully understand it, but let let, let me start with Dark Souls as a contrast. I I, I have often referred to Dark Souls as a rhythm game, and I don't literally mean that. What I mean is that everything happens uh, fairly slowly in Dark Souls, and there are only a certain set of moves that your enemies have and if you just understand the rhythm like what you're able to do what they're able to do and you just sort of have this little dance between you and an enemy you play enough and you understand how it works you can succeed and shadows die twice seems to me to be a game that dispenses with some of that it's much faster it seems to me and the idea is not so much to whittle down health necessarily like I don't think this is a game where you just swing wildly and kill people although that may in fact be possible I think based on what you were just saying and other things I you know I've heard and seen is that it's more about reacting to your enemies parrying or dodging at the last moment which creates opportunities for you to finish off enemies like there there are clearly going to be stealth elements to this game But when it it seems to me that the idealized version of combat is not just walk up and spam a button, but it's it's to engage in a dance in a way that's like Dark Souls, but also is quite different. Right. Like you're you're not sort of plotting, you're reacting. And then I, I I, I think the it seems to me that the the actual death in in these games, the way you kill enemies is sort of over the top assassination type stuff right like you you may winnow down whatever is not quite health or not quite stamina and uh your very next move could just be (laughs) slitting their throat cutting running them through with the sword things like that
0: but also player death is different this time around too in in the demo that i was shown when the player character died they were actually able to get right back up the 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 enemies actually turned their backs. They walked away. The player's lifeless body came back to life. They leapt up, took one of them by surprise, and then finished off the major boss in that area. And they yeah. they were dead a few minutes ago. I, I, guess, uh-huh. I guess shadows, well, shadows die, die twice. twice. There you go. Yeah,
1: exactly. The Dark Souls mechanic is you die, and if you make it back to the point at which you died, you can collect all the stuff you dropped. I think the twist here is, you die and you have a chance to revive yourself how that works precisely i don't know but that's clearly what's going to happen
0: it's amazing to see a studio work with just so many flavors right just a very yeah. small collection of flavors and, and putting them in different combinations yields completely different gameplay experiences of course we don't still don't have a, a release date or even a window for shadows die twice do we
1: we do we do we have we have 2019 okay. But that's a very it large
0: one. <laughs> it is. You could drive a whole year through it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Dave, that's certainly not all of the games that we saw at this year's E3. Not by a long shot. We, we've got a lot more up at Polygon.com. Mm-hmm. Also on our YouTube channel. Any any games in particular nope. that we didn't cover that you would, you would refer folks back to the website to, to read more about? We
1: just put up, as we record this today, our best of E3 uh, story, which corrals uh, something like 15 games that we collectively decided were the best that we saw at E3. And I think that is a great jumping off point for not only what we think are really promising games, but also they, you know, that story links out to our more in-depth coverage.
0: Absolutely. We'll include that and a few other links in today's show notes. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Dave, for taking the time today. To, to be on the show
1: thank you for also taking the time to be on my show
0: <laughs> quality control and thanks to you at home for listening today you can find all of our team's coverage from this year's e3 online at polygon.com slash e3 when we've got another game to talk about it'll be charlie hall and or dave tack <laughs> thank you for listening to polygons quality control
3: to the Vox Media Podcast
2: Network.